So I will tell you, um, in our household with my mother, sister, and my father, one of the things that I have learned time and time again with my mother and sister is that they know a lot of things that I do not know. One of the things that, unfortunately, my mother and sister have taught me is that the Hallmark Channel is not a good place to watch movies. (laughs) It happens in the very first five minutes that I can tell you what's going to happen But for some reason, my mother, as she sits in her chair, seems to wonder what's going to happen. What's he going to say? I can tell you that I've learned specifically from my mother and especially my sister that when I hear how she's doing and she responds that she is fine, she's not doing fine. But more importantly, what I've learned from my mother and sister is how important patient care is. What I mean by this is, My mother, she graduated from Marin University in the first school of nursing, and my sister very shortly is going to graduate from the Marin School of Nursing. And one of the things, as my sister has been learning over and over again about the human body and has showed me things that I do not want to see and has shown me things about pictures and diagrams and pregnancies and umbilical cords, and I continue to tell her, I don't want to see that. One of the things that her and my mother have in common that I've listened to as all the nursing jargon is going over my head has been how important patient care is. I remember all of the cars that my sister had in her pharmacology and all of the things that she's done to study. I know that all of that is good, but when you are going into the room of a patient who has been diagnosed with cancer, or when you are going in to take care of of a person that has a wound, when you go into that room, the knowledge that you possess means very little if you do not know how to graciously talk to your patient. If you do not know how to come in there and how to talk, and as the family members are surrounding the patient, and as they're worried, they're wondering what's going to happen. What is so important is not that you know everything about the human body, but it matters how do you take care of the patient. And so today, as I'm in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10, I know that there are many of us in this room who have things that are continuing in our lives that are not going away. We have thorns that have been given to us, and it seems as if no matter what we do, no matter how we pray, that they are not going away. And so today, I'm learning from my sister and my mother what it is to look at many people today that are dealing with things that are quite difficult. I feel very much out of my pay grade, but as we are going to walk through 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10, we're going to be asking the question, how do we continue to have grace and how do we continue to have gratitude? With all that life throws at us, how do we continue to not lose heart. We're going to look at this through three distinct points. We're going to see in point one, we're going to see how Paul pleads with the Lord. Secondly, we're going to see God's response to Paul's pleading. And third, we're going to see how Paul trusts in God's grace. In 2 Corinthians 11, it's important before we even get to our text, we, we have to understand where the apostle Paul is coming from. The Apostle Paul in chapter 11, false teachers have now come into the Corinthian church, and these these have been called super apostles. And basically what they're doing is they are spreading 
air throughout the church, and now Paul's ministry is now in trouble in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul goes on to say, he says that while these apostles or these false teachers are boasting about all the things that make them good, Paul says, I will, in verse 30, he says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So while the world and while all these teachers are boasting about the things that make them great, Paul says, I'm going to boast about that which makes me weak. Then Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 12, and he talks about this man. He says that this man that was cast into the third heaven, and he said that he saw things that man may not utter. But he says, of these things I will not speak, but again I will speak of that which makes me weak. And so we come to verse 7, and Paul says, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. We see that this thorn, it serves two purposes. God is using this thorn to humble Paul so that Paul can be known as a man who is being strengthened by the Lord. But Satan, his enemy, is coming to buffet him so that Paul may, in fact, curse God. We've seen this before, haven't we? We look at the book of Job. And what does Satan do? Satan says, the only reason why Job worships you is because of everything that you give him. He says, surely take him away. He says, flesh for flesh. He says, take everything that he has and surely he will curse you. And so as we look at our text today, we have multiple things happening and we have the devil is doing his best with this thorn to buffet Paul. And God is using this thorn so that Paul may, in fact, not be conceited. So now we go to our first point. Yes, ma'am. Our first point, we see that Paul pleads with the Lord. Look with me in verse 8. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. We are uncertain truly to what it was that was affecting Paul, but we know that whatever it was, we know that it was greatly affecting him because he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. I pleaded that it would leave me. We see this, we see this in, in Psalm 42 when, it, when he says, when the psalmist says, as with deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? We see this in Psalm 130 when the psalmist says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. We are seeing here that Paul is pleading. He's saying, God, please take away this thorn. It's bothering me. It's buffeting me every single day. It's with me when I wake up, when I go into the temple, when I go and when I write to the Corinthian church, when I'm, when I'm speaking to the Galatians, this thorn is with me. And Paul says, I want this thorn to be gone. This word plead, it's known as when in Matthew 8, whenever the centurion asked that his paralyzed servant would be helped. It's known in a time when someone is desperate and knows that God is the only one who can do something. We see here in 2 Corinthians, we get an eyewitness look into Paul's prayer life. Robert Alter, in his Hebrew translation of Lamentations 341, he describes prayer like this. He says, let us lift up our hearts on our palms to God in the heavens. 
This is what prayer is. Prayer is when we get on our hands and knees and we come before God and we pour out our hearts on our palms and we speak to our Lord. Brothers and sisters, I wonder how many of you can resonate with the Apostle Paul with things that are in your life that are not going away. For some of us, our thorn may be depression. It may be that for quite some time that each and every day is the same and depression just sits upon your soul. It may be for some of you in here that for some time now have been married and now you are hoping to start a family and maybe month after month and year after year you remain barren and you go before the Lord and you ask him that he may remove this and that he would answer your prayer. Or it may be things that you've done in your past that God has forgiven you for and that God has redeemed, but continually you feel guilt and condemnation for that which was done in the past. Or maybe... It is your marital status, and as you continually see men and women coming together in holy matrimony, you continually ask the Lord, when will it be my turn? When will I get to, to walk down and see my bride come? I know that for me personally, I know that my thorn came when I was five years old. I remember... It was at the time when I had a, a Game Boy, I think Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance. And I remember I was playing, and I went to the soccer game, and let me tell you, I'm just going to ruin the story now. I'm not, I don't play in the MLS. Not that good of a soccer player. It didn't happen. But I'll never forget the thing that the coach told me. The coach, I remember, I came with my Game Boy. I was playing. I didn't really want to play, but I played. And I'll never forget the words that the coach told me that day. He said, Matthew, you should just play your Game Boy because that's all your ever going to be good at. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And now, in everything that I do, in every relationship that I enter, whether it's in a job, whether it's in a friendship, every day that I wake up, there is a time for me where I wonder, is Matt Magumia enough? Every single day, no matter what I do, no matter even right now, the question that is looming in my flesh is, am I good enough now? What do you do when you've been praying to God to remove that which is burdening you and God's not answering you? How many of you know George Mueller? He says, listen, he says, I myself have been bringing certain requests before God now. Listen, for 17 years, six months, and never has a day passed without me praying concerning them all this time. Yet the full answer has not come up to the present, but I look for it. I confidently expect it. 17 years, George Mueller was praying while he was ministering to orphans, while he was continually taking care of those whose society was not looking at. And he says, I have been praying and praying and praying and waiting. So as we see in verse 9, we see that Paul is pleading with God that God would answer him. 
And now we go into our second morning. We see how does God respond to Paul's pleading? I know right now we're getting ready for the Super Bowl, and I don't know how many of you have your favorite commercial. Um, how many of you remember the Energizer Bunny commercial? You know what I'm talking about? You, you have the, the little pink bunny that says keep going and going and going. You remember he does that? I wonder how are we going to continue to keep on going and going and going? And in verse 9, the Lord says something so sweet to Paul. Look at what he says. He says, but he said to me, he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Grace is the foundation for believers, is it not? Our salvation and our standing before God has nothing to do with how good we are, but it has everything to do with how God has been to us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. Paul needed to be reminded that it wasn't so much that Paul was sufficient. It wasn't that the disciples around Paul was sufficient. It wasn't that anything that Paul had was sufficient. Paul needed to be reminded that the loving kindness of the Lord was all that he needed. We are saved by grace. The only boast that you and I have is that we are really good at one thing and one thing only. I think there's one thing I'm really good at that I'm better than all of you, and it is in the category of sin. I think if we could all open our hearts up, I could outsin all, each and every one of you, hands down. We're really good at sinning, and yet we are saved by grace. Because he first loved us. You know, Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you hear this? It doesn't say Christ died for those who are in their Bible studies reading about the Lord. It says that he died for those who did not deserve his grace. If you are here today and you would not call yourself a believer, The Lord's not waiting for you to become a better version of yourself. The only thing the Lord is waiting for you to do is to acknowledge your weakness. We as the body of believers are known not because we are so strong, but it's as Romans 5, 6 says, that we are a whole bunch of weak, messed up people that God decided to display his love upon. This, this phrase, my grace is sufficient, in the Greek, it's interesting that it's in the present tense. And so literally the text can be read, he has been saying to me, my grace is sufficient. I wonder how often Paul went to this text when he was battling to understand that God's grace is sufficient. Look, and, look at what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, if I should be left alone as to have no one care for me in the whole wide world, If my father and mother should forsake me and every friend should prove a Judas to me. Every one of my friends, everyone betrays you. Thy love is enough for me. This word grace, it's literally understood as a way that God leans into his people. It's understood in the way that he leans in and he extends himself. Grace. 
is God's loving kindness. It's seen in passages like Deuteronomy 33:26, when it says, there is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help. Or Isaiah 57, 15, when God says, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. He says, to revive the spirit of the lowly. I have friends in here in this room who I know who just need to understand and need to acknowledge that God leans into his people. And it's not so much when we're gathered with the body of church, though he is, but it's in the quiet times when we are with the Lord and we are waiting for his grace to come into us. We see God's grace in the passages of Scripture, don't we? Let's return to Job. Can you imagine being Job and having ten of your children die? Can you imagine the ten caskets that, that Job must have looked at as he looked at his sons and his daughters? And yet God was able to sustain Job by his grace. And it is in these times when the enemy starts to say things like this, this is what your God does for you? How did he deceive Eve? Satan came up to Eve and all he started to do was to raise doubts about the goodness of God. The devil's number one priority in everything that we go through, in all of this passage, all the devil truly wants to do is to get the body of believers to go through enough sufferings that at one day we'll say, God is not good and we would curse him. Our enemy of our soul hates what we're doing right now. We are a body of people who continually rejoice and we rejoice and we rejoice and all Satan tries to do day in and day out through the various things that we struggle with is get us to a point where we might say, you know what, I don't think God is for me. We see God's grace. Do you remember Abraham? You remember the way that Abraham waits for a son and God so graciously loves him and takes care of him and answers him and his wife's request? Or how about Genesis 16, 13, when Hagar, when do you know what Hagar says of God? She says, you are a God of seeing. Man, I love that. I love that God knows exactly what I go through and that he sees all that I go through in a 24 hour. He knows my heart. Isn't that good? That he's a God of seeing. What about Genesis 39, 21? When it says, and the Lord was with Joseph. What about Exodus 3:12? Whenever Moses is so scared that now he's an old man, he's about to lead Israel out before God. And he, you know what he says? He says, I will be with you. Moses, I'm going to stand right next to you when you go to Pharaoh, and when it seems as if you're just standing there, when you take your staff and I'm going to be with you. Or what about 1 Samuel 1.15, whenever it says that Hannah, she pours out her soul before the Lord as she's begging God. She's saying, God, please give me a son. 
And God's grace was able to sustain her and to help her. Or what about 2 Samuel 18, 33, when, when David goes to his men and he says, men, tell me, where is my son? And they tell him that his son has died. And he says, oh, my son Absalom, oh, that I would have died and not you. He weeps. His son, his son, his son was trying to kill him. And David said, whatever you do, don't kill my boy. Don't kill my son. And he weeps, says, no, Absalom, my son. And the sweet psalmist is able somehow by the amazing grace of our Lord to be sustained. Or how about Deuteronomy 33:25? This is when a, a pastor of mine, he said, when I don't feel like getting up out of the bed in the morning, when I want to just hit snooze and I want to call in sick, he says, I save this verse for times like that. When it says, your bars shall be iron and bronze, and as your days, so shall your strength be. Paul understands, and Paul was comforted by the amazing grace of our Lord. And we see now in the rest of verse 9 and 10, look at how Paul now responds. Do you see anywhere in the text where, where God says, I'm going to take away the thorn? No, we don't get any indication that the thorn is going away. But look at how Paul responds. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you understand this? What Paul is saying, Paul is saying that the Christian finds his strength not in when he's strong, but he finds his ultimate strength in when he is weak. This is the paradox. This type of faith, this is exactly what unbelievers are looking to be in the church. I heard a pastor say the world is not looking for a new definition of Christianity. It's looking for a new demonstration of Christianity. The world is looking for people to whom it seems they have nothing at all that the world would seem as success and that for somehow they're still continuing to rejoice in God. The world needs to see broken Christians who somehow still have their joy in something other than what the world sees. This is what makes the world say, I don't get it. And then we get to say, can I tell you about what Jesus has done in my life? Psalm 18:1 says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Paul recognizes that for him to truly be strong, it happens when he's weak. Commentators say that this book, 2 Corinthians, was most likely written in AD 55, AD 56, and, and the book of Philippians was most likely writ, written in AD 62. How many of you know Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? What is amazing is that, do you know that when Paul is writing the book of Philippians, that he is most likely writing in 18 hours of darkness, hair matted, people dying in the prison cell of starvation, and yet Paul says these things, rejoice, my brothers, again, I say rejoice. This 
grace that Paul witnessed in 2 Corinthians sustained him his whole entire ministry. Paul is able, while he is in chains, while people are maligning him, while people are making fun of him, what does he say? I just, I rejoice because Christ is preached. This grace is able to sustain. It's able to comfort. It's able to come and to do for us what we truly need. It's able to comfort us in a way that nobody else can. Again, notice the text does not say your husband's grace is sufficient for you. Notice the text does not say my wife's grace is sufficient for you. Notice the text does not say my dearly beloved son's grace is sufficient for me. Notice it doesn't say my 401k is sufficient for me. But the text says my grace is sufficient for me. As we look at this, as we look at this model, this model that Paul exhibits before us, it looks familiar, does it not? I remember when I was growing up, one of the things that I used to do sometimes is I used to get grounded like a lot. And and so one of the things that we would do is that whenever I would get grounded, I was very smart. My dad was a coach at TriWest, and so whenever I would get grounded and it would be soccer season, I would go to practice with my dad so I could get out of the house. My mom caught on eventually. She said, Matt, what you're doing is wrong. I know it was wrong, but I didn't want to sit in the house all day. But I remember as my dad was coaching, um, he's from Uganda, so so he's very, very intense in the way that he, he coaches. And one of the things he would always say, for those of you who know soccer, you always play man to man, okay? And he'd always say, he goes, you go, in his, in his nice Ugandan accent. He would always say that phrase. I remember time and time again, he goes, you go, he goes, you go. Basically meaning that wherever your man goes, you go, you follow him. You don't play zone, you play man to man. So wherever he goes, you go. And so I I was thinking about that, and what does Paul say at the end of Philippians 3? He said, that I may become like him, meaning who? Meaning Christ. So wherever Christ goes, Paul goes too. We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord prays just like Paul. We know that in Matthew 26, 36, we know that Jesus goes to pray just like him. And in fact, it even says that his soul, it starts to become sorrowful. It even becomes sorrowful to the point of death. Luke tells us that he starts to be in such agony that he starts to sweat drops of blood. Now, I don't know about you, but I am a very anxious person. For those of you who don't know about the Enneagram, here's my little plug, okay? I'm an Enneagram type six, which basically means I see the worst in everything. I'm anxious about everything. I think about everything in the worst case scenario. So what I love here is that Jesus can resonate with me when Jesus starts to become so anxious. And why is he becoming so anxious? Because Jesus, you have to think about this. Jesus from all eternity in the Godhead has always been with the Father. From eternity past to eternity present, Jesus has always known what it is like to delight in the Father. And the Holy Spirit was there. And he knows what it is to know the Father one-on-one because they are truly connected. And now, for the first time ever, 
God is about to pour out his wrath on his son. The full weight of your sin, my sin, is about to be poured out on this innocent lamb. And as Jesus contemplates what is about to happen, he starts to get anxious. It's interesting, Luke tells us that Jesus asks three times, just like Paul, and he says, Father, if there would be any way, let this cup pass from me. But he says, nevertheless, not my will be done but yours. Jesus knows what it's like to pray to God the Father and to ask for something to be taken away and for God the Father to say no. Jesus knows what it's like to have every single one of his friends betray him and to continue to have joy in the Father. Why do we know this? Because Hebrews 12.2 tells us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him. Jesus knows what it's like to be so nervous and to hear the Father say, no, and for Jesus to say, thy will be done. Jesus, it is amazing. You know sometimes when you're trying to communicate to somebody how you're feeling and your words are not like, one of the things that I've gotten mad over time is my inability to communicate how I'm actually feeling. You know, uh, one of the, the phrases that I use many times when I'm speaking to someone is I say, you know what I mean? And what do they normally say? Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, bro, I've been there. Yeah, yeah. No, you haven't. But anyway, and then the same way, someone comes to me, I'm like, I know what you mean. I don't know what you mean. I kind of know what you mean. But Jesus is the only one for when you pray to him, you never have to say, Jesus, do you know what I mean? And him say, you know what, man, I have no idea. No, Jesus knows what you mean. Jesus knows exactly what you mean. He's omniscient, meaning before you even pray, Jesus knows the full gambit of what you are dealing with. And what is amazing is that while I am in tears praying before the Lord, asking him to do something, Jesus says, but Matt, if you could only see what is happening in the future, if you could only just rest in my goodness, Jesus knows what it's like to hear angry men coming to him with pitchforks, to stand up, to hear the Father say no, and to continue to follow the Father in complete obedience and joy. So when we look at how do we continually rejoice or how do we continually have joy in the midst of all situations, you say, Matt, I need a model, and our model is our Lord. Psalm 56, 8 says, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in a bottle. Brothers and sisters, I have no idea how many tears I've cried even this month. But God has a record of, he knows, do you know that I literally have a system in, in the way in which I go to bed? I turn six times. I turn left, turn right, on my stomach, I go left, I go right. I do that. And God in heaven somewhere knows Matt Mugumi has turned this many times. He knows us. And so when we come to our Lord Jesus, 
with the things that are not going away, with the things that are lingering, with the things that after this service, as you go to lunch on Monday, on Tuesday, for the next three years that may be with you, I just want you to be able to come back to this text and say, his grace is sufficient for me. Friends are good. The church is good. Counsel is good. Counseling is good. But our Lord Jesus, there's nothing that compares to his grace. Spurgeon said in a sermon, just to prove the sufficiency of his grace. It would almost be like if a fish in the Atlantic Ocean were to say, I'm so worried that I may drink all the water in the ocean. You say, how silly is this? And yet how silly we must be when we think that God's grace is not sufficient. For those of you who maybe are not followers of Christ, I would just ask you, your greatest weakness is not the trial you're going through now, but I would tell you your greatest weakness is the fact that you need to know the Lord. And why do I know this? Because what does Jesus say? What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world? Let's say God answers every single one of your requests, but you still go to hell. Why would you want the world and lose the Father? So I ask you, his grace is not only sufficient for your salvation, but it is sufficient for everything that we go through. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for today, and I thank you, Lord, that your grace is sufficient. God, I know that I was only able to touch the surface to how good you are and to how sufficient your grace is. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to know that in 2020 and the rest of the years that we have here on earth, that the only reason we can rejoice still in all that we endure is because you empower your people. You ride through the heavens and you help us. And I pray, God, for those who have been struggling this year, God, with things that are not going away, I pray that you would comfort them. I ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.